All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. Tonight we're going to learn about a case that you may not have heard about. It's the Civil Rights Cases of 1883, a consolidation of five cases brought to the Supreme Court to help define the 14th Amendment. Tonight we're going to learn about Reconstruction America and the court during that period and the decision they made in this case that affected the lives of African Americans for the next 60, 70 years. Lots of history tonight, and we welcome your participation. Let me introduce you to our two guests who will be at the table to help us understand this important case. Danielle Holly Walker is the dean of Howard University's Law School here in Washington, D.C. She has uh, federal court experience. At one time, she clerked for Carl Stewart, chief justice of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Welcome to C-SPAN. Glad to have you. Thank you. Peter Kersnow is a U.S. Civil Rights Commissioner, a Republican, and he is also a partner at a law firm in Cleveland, former member of the National Labor Relations Board appointed by President George W. Bush. Welcome to C-SPAN. Glad to have you. Thank you. So uh, this, when you go through uh, high school or perhaps even college, uh, you learn about Plessy Ferguson, which is a case we're going to talk about later. You learn about the Dred Scott decision. This one, not so much. If you had been advising us, would you have put this case on the landmark cases list? I would say absolutely. I think it deserves the same kind of treatment as Dred Scott and it's Plessy versus Ferguson. And I think in some ways it's more significant because those cases have been overturned. And so the civil rights cases are still relevant because they're still cited um, by the Supreme Court today. And so I think that they definitely deserve to be on that list. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of a continuum. If you take a look at the enforcement acts and the cases that were cited there under, and in addition to what Danielle said, if you take a look at this particular case, as opposed to some of the other Enforcement Act cases like Crookshank or maybe in Plessy versus Ferguson, you've got a case that is still viable, but also presaged the 1964 Civil Rights Act, gave a roadmap for how that act would be passed and face or be able to withstand constitutional challenge. Well, let's go back before we can go forward and learn a bit about life uh, after the Civil War in the United States. So could both of you put a little bit of, of color onto the subject matter? Uh, this is uh, 1870s, 1880s America. We're in the, the height of Reconstruction. <clears throat> what was life like, particularly in the South for blacks and whites, but America at large? Danielle? I think, you know, the Reconstruction period is one of the most important periods in American history. I think so many important things happened during that period, including the founding of many HBCUs, so including Howard University, was founded in 1867, um, something that was done by General O. Howard, O. Howard, uh, who helped to lead the Freedmen's Bureau. I think it was a time of 
great political participation for African Americans. Over 2,000 African Americans um, held uh, public office during that time. I think of people like Robert Smalls from South Carolina. Um, and it was a time in which there was a large negotiation about what would happen uh, to the people who had previously uh, been enslaved. What would their rights be? What would those bundle of rights be in terms of political rights, civil rights? So a time of great uncertainty. And so we know that in the late 1860s, we see the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, partly in response to this idea that black Americans were gaining rights. So I think it was a time of great uncertainty, but also a time of just enhanced political participation and participation in civic life. So even things like, uh, for the first time, we see someone like Richard Greener, who has recently been celebrated at the University of South Carolina, became the first black faculty member at the University of South Carolina. So I think things like that are first landmarks that remain from that period for African Americans. It was a time of amazing tumult. When you consider we just came out of fighting a civil war. All of the Confederate states were subject to military rule. And as Danielle said, it was the growth of the Klan. Uh, there was a considerable amount of terrorism that was going on, suppressed to a large extent by the military governorships of the various Confederate states. But still, as we will be probably discussing a little bit later, all these cases had a component to them, especially the 1870 Enforcement Act, trying to suppress what was going on with respect to the Klan. It was a time, despite the fact that we just came through the most horrific period in terms of loss of life in the United States, uh, history of the United States, there was still huge amounts of rebellion, there were uh, massacres that had occurred, there was uh, just egregious discrimination. Um, it, was, um, it was a difficult period of time, and the courts struggled through that. Not only was it a difficult time in terms of our culture, but it was a difficult time in terms of mediating where the law was going, because we had several significant amendments that were passed in a short order. 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. We had the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation. We had the first impeachment of a sitting president. All these things going on within the space of maybe 15 years. You know, we think that we're living in tumultuous times now, but nothing is compared to what occurred then. And we should also note, as we talk about them, that many of the members, probably the majority of the members of Congress, had served in the Civil War. And many of the justices on the court mm -hmm. had also served. So they brought that sensibility as they were deciding these issues uh, for the public at large. I, I really would like to spend a moment, because I, people don't have access to their constitutions, yes. um, and walking through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 13th past 1865. The 14th is celebrating its sesquicentennial this year, 150 years. It was passed in 1868 and the 15th in 1870. What did they do? So the 13th Amendment, of course, abolishes slavery. That's the most important thing. And then Section 2 of the 13th Amendment gives Congress, and I think this is what we'll spend a lot of time talking about, really empowers Congress to be able to enforce basically that, al that abolition of slavery. So that's the 13th. 14th Amendment. Equal Protection Clause. Um, probably one of the most significant and used clauses in all of our constitutional jurisprudence. It's invoked on a number of occasions, in this case, unsuccessfully. Um, and then we go on to the 15th Amendment. All of these are of a piece. They are an outgrowth of the institution of slavery and the second class status of blacks. And the 15th Amendment that ensured voting rights. And the cases, or the case that we're going to be discussing, the civil rights cases, five consolidated cases, 
really dealt with an attempt to enforce the rights and privileges that were granted either under the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. Now, there's an argument, and Harlan makes the argument, as to whether or not there are rights granted, affirmative positive rights granted by the 13th Amendment and also the 14th Amendment, and that, war, that formed the debate between Harlan on the one side and um, Bradley on the other side. I'm going to go back to the 14th for just a second. So Section 1, of course, is the Citizenship Clause, which we think so much about now and are talking a lot about now in our immigration debates, uh, the Birthright Citizenship Clause, which says if you were born here in the United States, then you <coughs> are a citizen. And then we think of the Privileges and Immunities, Due Process and Equal Protection Clause are all part of, uh, are all part of the 14th Amendment. And the last uh, section of the 14th Amendment says the Congress shall have the power to enforce yes. by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. So very similar to the Section 2 of the 13th Amendment. And in fact, uh, there were people lobbying for the ne ne need to pass legislation to help uh, underscore and perhaps shore up Reconstruction. Uh, two of those people were Frederick Douglass and Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts. Who was Frederick Douglass? Well, Frederick Douglass, uh, we've got a picture of him at my house, um, probably the preeminent civil rights leader, maybe of all time. Um, he was the Martin Luther King Jr. of the 19th century. And, um, you know, heck, uh, who wasn't Frederick Douglass? So Frederick Douglass was seminal to every, I think, uh, philosophical underpinning of emancipation, possibly even the Civil War, and uh, everything that succeeded it in the Reconstruction period. His home is here in Washington, D.C. It's run now by the National Park Service, and if you get to Washington, it's in the Anacostia section of the District of Columbia, uh, quite beautifully restored and really worth a visit if you get here. We visited with our cameras, and we went with historian Edna Green Medford to learn more about the work of Frederick Douglass and the Massachusetts senator to get this legislation passed. Let's listen. Charles Sumner and Douglas were kindred spirits. Uh, Sumner had spent his entire life fighting for the rights of African Americans, just as Douglas had. And so it, it's interesting, every opportunity Sumner had, he attempted to do something for African Americans. The two men developed a friendship over the years. And so when Sumner is issuing, when, when he's going to the Senate and he's suggesting that the 13th and 14th Amendments aren't working in terms of um, ensuring that African Americans are treated as full and complete citizens of the United States. While he's doing that, Frederick Douglass is out writing speeches, he's writing letters to friends and to politicians, he's, he's uh, writing editorials supporting what Sumner is doing in Congress. And Sumner, in turn, when he's speaking on the floor of the Senate is actually referencing Douglas and the kinds of discrimination that Douglas had personally experienced. And so the two men are working hand in hand on this measure, not sitting at the same desk and writing it, of course, but they're supporting each other's aim. So when Sumner dies in um, 1874, he tells his friends like Douglas, please don't let my bill die. You know, make sure that it is passed. And of course, probably um, as uh, in tribute to Sumner, Congress does the right thing and they do pass it. So, Peter Kirsten, what did the Civil Rights Act of 1875 do? 
Um, you know, there, there were several enforcement acts, and it was really the, the second one. The 1875 Civil uh, Rights Act was, in many respects, the precursor to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And what it purported to do was to grant equal protection or the enjoyment of the privileges and immunities of citizens for public accommodations, um, whether it be opera houses, theaters, inns, and public conveyances, um, and that was the key right there. Uh, the five cases that were brought that were consolidated had to do with denials of the usage of an inn, an opera house, a theater, two inns actually, opera house, a theater, and then also the 19th century Rosa Parks, if you will. Um, one lady wanted to use a railroad, a railroad car that was reserved for females but was denied the ability to do that. So these cases were consolidated and brought before the court to determine whether or not the 1875 Act, which purported to support the 14th Amendment, granted these folks the ability to sue, the ability to seek redress under the 14th Amendment. How did the country at large react to the passage of this legislation? I think it was a hugely controversial piece of legislation. And what was interesting is that it was really evolving. We talk about the tumultuous period of Reconstruction and going back to Charles Sumner. I think Sumner and others said, okay, the 1866 Civil Rights Act that we passed was not enough. So therefore, they went forward to the 14th Amendment. After passing the 14th Amendment, they say it doesn't seem like the 13th and 14th Amendment are having the effect that we want them to have. And so because of that, I think they really wanted to see kind of a greater impact from the Civil Rights Act of 1875. So the reaction was a very strong reaction. There were in the South, for example, theater owners who said this will destroy our business, um, white theater owners who said if we, this will destroy our business if we are required uh, to allow basically uh, black members of the public to be able to come into theaters. Um, same arguments were made about railroad cards. It's very interesting, again, that these 19th century arg arguments really mirror the ones that we see in the 20th century when it comes to the Civil Rights Act. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Two other names that were referenced I want to spend a few minutes on before we get into the actual mechanics of the case. Justice Joseph Bradley and Justice John Marshall Harlan. Both of them, one wrote the, uh, the, the majority opinion, the other wrote the single dissent to this case. Oh, and they're both very interesting human beings. Uh, so uh, would you like to tell us about Joseph Bradley? What can you tell us sure. about Sure. Well, Bradley finds himself at the fulcrum of almost everything that occurred with respect to the Enforcement Acts, their denouement, and Reconstruction. Um, what you see is, you know, we, we talk here about the 1883 civil rights cases, but prior to the 1883 civil rights cases, there was, a, well, there were a couple of cases, but one, the Crookshank case that uh, Bradley wrote that dealt with the 1870 Enforcement Act, which I would argue probably had greater significance in the context of Reconstruction and the potential impact on black Americans than the 1875 Civil Rights Act. And what that is, it was the first anti-Klan act. And among other things, it was the enforcement mechanism for the 15th Amendment. It would have protected the ability of, or did purport to protect the ability of blacks, for example, to seek redress when they were denied voting rights, um, other things such as gun rights. Um, 
the way it was worded was directed particularly at the Klan, and it's, it was uh, supported or supporting the 14th Amendment. Bradley wrote the opinion that struck that down, the 1870 uh, Civil Rights Act, the 1870 Enforcement Act, and that was devastating in that context of where the United States was at that particular moment in time because there really was then no means to check the Klan. And the Klan was working as kind of the terrorist arm of uh, the Democratic Party at the time, enforcing segregation, enforcing a second-class status or third-class status for blacks. And Bradley wrote the majority opinion, which followed in large part the way the civil rights cases were decided. That is, deciding them on the basis of the requirement of state action. That is, if there was not state action or some type of state deprivation of equal protection, then there was no means of redress. We must talk about Justice John Marshall yes. Harlan, who wrote the dissent, mm -hmm. and the dissent is often cited in history books as being one of the more significant dissents of the Supreme Court. Uh, John Marshall Harlan from Danville, Kentucky, served on the court for 33 years, appointed first uh, by Hayes in 1877. He earned the name the Great Dissenter. Why? Um, he writes two of the most famous dissents in history, the Civil Rights Cases dissent, and then the dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, which becomes the colorblind constitution kind of quotation that was still used and still promoted very much today um, in the way that we talk about 14th Amendment jurisprudence. And I think as Justice Ginsburg has said very famously about Harlan, it's rare when someone writes a dissent that later becomes the law, right? And so we see Harlan do that in Plessy versus Ferguson where he says the separate but equal doctrine is not one that should stand. I think Harlan also is an interesting person because he was slave owner, he also opposed the Emancipation Proclamation. He opposed the 13th Amendment. Then after the election of Grant, he changes his mind about what really should be happening in the country moving forward and begins to be a supporter of the 14th Amendment and overall the Reconstruction Amendments. And so it is also rare in public life to see someone have that kind of change in their views. He, in addition to coming from a family of slave owners, had a mixed-race half-brother, uh, who was a very important person in his life throughout his life. How does he bring all this together to, to the court? There were probably three major influences on Harlan's life that informed how he approached the law, at least with respect to the civil rights cases and Plessy versus Ferguson. The first was probably, I think Danielle touched upon it, he had a, a kind of a complex approach to the whole matter of race. Um, his father was a slave owner, and as you indicated, it is likely, it seems that, you know, I, there's not been any genetic testing, but by most accounts, he probably did have a uh, brother who was half black, fathered by his father. His father was a slave owner. Um, if you read the literature on it, he was at best conflicted about the institution. It's said that he would remonstrate his employees who didn't treat slaves well. Uh, the institution was still uh, there. His family was a very prominent family. His father was an attorney general. He became an attorney general. They had kind of a nomadic political uh, dynamic going on with, uh, I think they were Whigs at one time. Of course, the Whigs went uh, the way of the dodo bird. Then they went to the Know Nothing Party, then the Union Party. I think he was elected attorney general under the Union Party. And then he became finally a Republican. He himself, uh, meaning Harlan, uh, 
had kind of a, a, a unusual approach. I mean, it's, he is not somebody who you could define in a cookie-cutter fashion. Yes, he wrote some of the great dissents with respect to civil rights, but he's also somebody who upheld miscegenation laws in uh, Pace versus Alabama. He also had a kind of unfortunate elocution with respect to uh, Chinese, where he did single out the Chinese race as being some race that's different from everyone else and wasn't necessarily really interested in acknowledging that someone who is born to someone of Chinese descent became an American citizen. So this is someone who was um, very interesting in those respects. Probably what informed much of his jurisprudence was not only his family background and personal experience with respect to his half-brother, but also he was someone who today we would call a fundamentalist Christian. Right. He was a deeply religious man, Presbyterian, and if you look at some of his writings, some of his dissents, you can see some of that. In fact, in the manner in which it was described, how he read his dissent, it was in a impassioned, fiery fashion, almost as if he was preaching from a pulpit. He would instruct his law clerks that according to biblical prescription, you should not treat one as a Jew or a Greek or black or white, but all God's creatures, and believe that the Declaration of Independence was the seeds for the entire abolitionist movement. And as we'll also talk about, I think he was he married a woman who was decidedly anti-slavery. So I think that's another important key influence on him. So let's uh, take a look at what the court looked like back then. Uh, in fact, there was only one Democrat appointee, Samuel Blatchford, who had been appointed by Andrew Johnson. Uh, the rest all Republicans, including the Chief Justice Morrison Waite, uh, the Samuel Freeman Miller and Stephen Johnson Field are the two Lincoln appointees. William Burnham Woods, Grant, Joseph Bradley, whom we talked about, Grant, Horace Gray, Arthur T. Stanley Matthews, Garfield, and of course John Marshall Harlan. One of the, thing that, the things that was interesting to me in looking at these cases, if we, oh, we couldn't show them on screen, U.S. v. Stanley, U.S. v. Ryan, U.S. v. Nichols, U.S. v. Singleton, and Robinson, the plaintiff versus the railroad of Memphis and Charleston Railroad, is that is the regional diversity? Right. Kansas, California, Missouri, New, New York. York and Tennessee. These are not deep south states. That's right. So the lives of, of black Americans were being challenged in, uh, in, in states all across the United States. Absolutely. I think the question of public accommodations, which is something that even in the north, you know, the question of whether you would see a black American sitting next to you or checking into the same inn that you were checking into, those were contested questions in every part of this country. And so we see some of the cases coming from San Francisco, California, and from New York, the theater case. And I think that's just a reminder that what was being decided, whether in the political system through the Civil Rights Act of 1875 or by the Supreme Court here in the civil rights cases, that these were questions that affected every American, right? These were not just questions that were relevant to people in the South. So I mentioned that I wanted to tell you about uh, the U.S. Solicitor General at the time. Uh, his name was Samuel Field Phillips, and as you saw, these were four of the five cases where the United States defending its position in the civil rights legislation. He argued those cases for the United States, as we learn, unsuccessfully. But an interesting background. Uh, he was a, a Solicitor General during 12 years under four different Republican presidents. Um, and when he returned to private practice when a Democrat was elected, he then uh, argued Plessy versus Ferguson before the Supreme Court. Uh, he belongs in the textbooks about civil rights history because of his arguments on behalf of the rights of, of black Americans in this country 
and uh, we just learned about him when we were getting ready for this case. There are a number of other lawyers as well, but he has a uh, long history as Solicitor General, and we thought you'd like to know about him. The case was heard March 29, 1883. The decision was issued in October 16th of that year. Uh, as we've been telling you, the, uh, Joseph Bradley wrote the majority opinion. It was only four pages long, and here is a portion of what he had to say. When a man has emerged from slavery, there must be some stage in the progress of his elevation when he takes the rank of a mere citizen and ceases to be the special favorite of the laws, and when his rights as a citizen or a man are to be protected in the ordinary modes by which other men's rights are protected. On the whole, we are of the opinion that no countenance of authority for the passage of the law in question can be found in either the 13th or 14th Amendments of the Constitution. You both alluded to this earlier, but what's the key uh, aspects of his opinion? So I think the first aspect and the one that has really become resonant in the law is the state action doctrine, uh, where essentially the court strikes down. So the outcome of this case is that they strike down Section 1 and Section 2 of the Civil Rights Act of 1875, basically the provision to uh, have public accommodation. And then also there was a punishment that was there in the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And I think when they say that we that Congress did not intend, that the 14th Amendment was not there to regulate individuals, but instead when it, say no, when it says the 14th Amendment, no state shall abridge privileges and immunities, it means that there must be some state action. And it takes a very narrow view of what it means. And I think Harlan, in the dissent, takes head on what state action really means. What does it mean for the state to be involved in something like someone going to the theater. So that's the first kind of key decision point um, of, the, of the court. I think that passage that you just put up on the screen is also, I mean, indicative of how activist in some ways this court was in taking on the Civil Rights Act of 1875. This was a duly passed piece of legislation and they're really substituting in many ways their own opinion about the way in which the rights of black Americans should be handled. I think Congress had decided one way and they say there should be a progression in which you kind of take up rights as a citizen. That is not anywhere in the 14th Amendment itself. That's a judgment that's made by a justices of the Supreme Court. So here's a bit of what the opinion had to say. Uh, he wrote, the opinion in these cases proceeds, it seems to me, upon grounds entirely too narrow and artificial. I cannot resist the conclusion that the substance and spirit of the recent amendments of the Constitution have been sacrificed by a subtle and ingenious verbal criticism. Uh, when did this dissent uh, actually become well thought of and, and cited in society? What was its trajectory over time? I think that Harlan began, I think, to be seen in terms of the power of his dissents very early on. So you hear people praising him. Frederick Douglass, uh, for one, praises his dissent, uh, sent him a note saying, thank you for this dissent. John Mercer Langston, um, who was the first dean of Howard's Law School, gave a public address um, to a crowd. There were lots of public meetings among African Americans after this decision was made. And Harlan's dissent was cited in almost all of those public meetings. John Mercer Langston, when he gives this address in Washington, D.C., to a group of African Americans talking about how terrible this decision is that has been made by the Supreme Court, they hold up Harlan's dissent, and especially that language of the substance and spirit 
of the Reconstruction Amendments being one that's being thwarted by the Supreme Court. And I think that's one of the most memorable lines of the dissent is the notion that there was a substance and spirit of the 13th and 14th Amendments that were really lost to this case and arguably have never been fully recovered. Here is what uh, Frederick Douglass did. He went to Lincoln Hall in downtown Washington, D.C. and delivered a very powerful speech in reaction to the Supreme Court case. We're going to learn from historian Ed, Edna Medford how he wrote that case and what the, reaction, the speech and what the reaction was. Once Douglass heard about the 1883 Supreme Court decision, he appeared at Lincoln Hall in Washington and made a speech. And it's a perfect study in eloquent indignation. It's one of the most powerful speeches he ever wrote. Lincoln Hall um, was packed with people. Uh, estimates are that there were 2,000 people or more inside of the building and that there were twice as many people outside. And so it gives some sense of how upset African-Americans especially were, but there were white Americans in the audience as well. What comes through is not just the indignation, but the sadness that the country has gone down this path. He also talked about the fact that African-Americans were Americans. They were American citizens. And that when you take away the rights of one group of Americans, eventually you're going to tread on your own rights as well. He's as upset about what it does to the country as a whole as what it did to African-Americans as a race of people. And so that's why this Civil Rights Act of 1875 was so important to him. Frederick Douglass also penned a letter to Chief Justice Don Marshall Harlan to thank him for his dissent. Here's a little of what he wrote. I took my pen only to assure you of my unalloyed satisfaction with your opinion and my gratitude and admiration. I wish to assure you, if you are alone on the bench, you are not alone in the country. Well, let's move from the law to society at large. What happened to black Americans after this case was decided? Pretty devastating. When you yeah. think about, as I said the, earlier on, the continuum of cases that we had and also the 1877 compromise, black Americans were left naked to aggression. Black Americans were, it was confirmed by the law that black Americans were not just second class citizens but third class citizens given the framework of where black Americans had been throughout the century especially. There was no effective means by which black Americans, when you take a look at Reconstruction, for example, in the military governorship of the old Confederacy, um, the Klan was rising and they were a virulent institution. They were acting as a, um, a military arm of a political party and were suppressing dissent and preventing blacks from voting and, frankly, preventing poor whites from voting also in certain respects if they weren't voting along uh, prescribed lines. This was... Uh, a horrific institution purportedly had come to an end to be supplanted by another horrific institution that was probably more as, just as insidious because it pretended to grant citizenship to blacks. Uh, blacks were not just, um, you know, we were talk, taking a look, uh, Daniel was mentioning uh, lawsuits with respect to whether blacks were viewed as whites or whites as blacks. There were a whole set of laws that were crafted pursuant to a one-drop rule, and the different privileges that were granted to you, depending upon whether or not you were one-eighth white or one-eighth black, one-quarter white, one-eighth, one-quarter black, grandfather clauses and, and things that prohibited individuals from holding property, from voting through literacy tests, 
poll, poll taxes, and so forth. Um, it was a nightmare for many in the South, but also in the North, too, because remember, I think Daniel touched upon this also. We're viewed, we're looking at the South, but in the North, there was rampant discrimination, there was rampant segregation. Life wasn't a whole, you know, box of chocolates for blacks in the North either, but this gave their imprimatur to discrimination. And when a Supreme Court says, rightly or wrongly under the law, that essentially blacks have no recourse with respect to public accommodations, inns, public conveyances, and the old regime of treating blacks differently than whites persists, it's, uh, it's a tough day in Dodge. What are the most important things, we have a minute each, most important things people should take away from this discussion about this Supreme Court ruling in 1883? We'll start with you. Well, I think that it provided, as I said at the outset, it provided the framework, the pathway to get to the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, because the 1883 civil rights cases are still, in the main, good law. Um, state action is required in, in these kinds of circumstances under the 14th Amendment. So the Commerce Clause was invoked. And that was a long journey also because we had to get through not just uh, the uh, various uh, cases during the Reconstruction, but also during the New Deal and then finally to the 1964 uh, Civil Rights Act. So I think the, the main takeaway from this is it didn't provide a judicial framework. What it did is it provided a pathway for the legislature and Bradley looked at the law and interpreted the law pursuant to the way the legislature and the drafters of the amendment had actually drafted it. That eventually dictated that the Commerce Clause be used to, to pass the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So I think the takeaway is if you want to change the law, we've got three branches. And the place where you change the law is in the legislature, in the first branch. Your thoughts? I always take away from this case how seriously a wrongly decided Supreme Court case can affect, negatively affect the lives of Americans on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a really long slog from 1883 to 1954 to Brown versus Board of Education and then to 1964 to the Civil Rights Act. Think how many people suffered under the violence and oppression of the white supremacist regime that was confirmed in the civil rights cases. And so I think the importance of this case is for, hopefully, for us never to forget. And this was a case where Congress created the 14th Amendment in the wake, in response to, uh, to the Civil War and to slavery, and to really have their intent thwarted, the substance and spirit, as Harlan said, of their intent of the drafting of the 14th Amendment thwarted by an activist Supreme Court that was clearly wrong and had terrible repercussions for this country for a long time. Special thanks to our partners at the National Constitution Center for their help in uh, putting together this series this year. And as we close here, thanks to Danielle Holly Walker, the Dean of Howard University Law School, Peter Kersnow, who is a civil, U.S. Civil Rights Commissioner, uh, and uh, to you for being part in our discussion tonight. Thanks for helping us folks understand a bit more about this period in time and the importance that one Supreme Court case can have upon American society. Thanks for being with us.